The following is a message by Dr. Dirk Bergsma from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let us pray. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being present with us according to your promise that wherever we are met together in your name, you are here with us. And may the words we speak and the thoughts upon which we reflect and the songs we sing be blended together in joyful praise to you, our worthy God, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm very much aware of a series of messages from Genesis chapter 3. Professor Jones is bringing those to us. And I must admit that uh, the inspiration for my devotional words this morning um, were triggered by Professor Jones' message just a week from today. But we're going to begin in Luke chapter 4, and we'll end in Genesis chapter 3, okay? And we're reading here the temptation of Jesus. I'm reading from the NIV. What you're about to hear is God's word. Let us listen with attentiveness and respond with faith. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Wherefore, forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here ends the reading of God's word. May his Holy Spirit help us to understand and respond in faith to it. Uh, Dear friends, the reality of temptation in our lives is often not taken as seriously as it ought to be. We are all being tempted all the time. Whether children are tempted to steal candy from a store counter or businessmen cheating others in a shrewd business deal, 
or whether a fourth grader cheats on a math test or a seminarian plagiarizes for a term paper and fails to footnote the source. We're tempted to lie and to cheat and to steal, to be selfish, to be unkind, to be lazy. Even in a devotional time, even in church, there's still temptation. We're tempted to be unattentive, tempted to have lazy worship, not participate in the prayers and sing joyfully with the songs and maybe doze. After all, some of you may have been up half the night studying. Well, if you do doze, I'll have to take some of that responsibility because what we have here is an inspiring message from the Lord and it should awaken our spirits immediately. It's no wonder when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he included this statement, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ought to pray that we would not submit to the demonic power of temptation. Our Lord Jesus' perfect life included victory over temptation. You know, we call ourselves evangelicals, focus on the cross, and rightly so. Jesus died to redeem us. That was his passive suffering, his passive obedience. But we are saved by Jesus' life, and his victory over temptation was part of the active obedience of our Lord. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived and didn't, and then died the death that we deserve to die. So Jesus' active obedience to the Heavenly Father included victory over temptation. And so for the next 10 minutes or so, I'd like to speak to you about Christ's victory over temptation, just two major issues that emerge from this text. First of all, it's difficult circumstances. Jesus' victory over temptation happened in very difficult circumstances. And secondly, it's threefold accomplishment. You knew we would get some threes in there somehow, wouldn't we? Christ's victory over temptation. First of all, it's very difficult circumstance. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. The previous three chapters talk about his birth and about uh, his presence in the temple at age 12 and about John the Baptist baptizing him in the River Jordan. And then we read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Beginnings are very difficult. Before Jesus ever performed a miracle, before he ever taught a parable, before he ever preached the Sermon on the Mount, before he had chosen his disciples, which means he had no support group, alone, the devil approaches him with this serious temptation. And he begins, the devil does, by casting doubt. That's the devil's favorite technique. If you are the son of God, at the beginning of his ministry, doubt 
And at the very end of his ministry on the cross, the same devil-inspired statement, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And thankfully, in both occasions, Jesus said no. Not only was it the beginning of the ministry, and you'll find, you know, every morning I have a list of graduates who are, whom I know are church planters because I think church planting must be the most difficult of ministries. And I think of John Rowe in downtown Chicago. I think of Chris Sandoval starting a Hispanic ministry in Cicero that Al Capone made famous, you see. And I think of uh, Fikret Bojek in Izmir, Turkey, Biblical Smyrna, planning a church. And the last, we, keep, we correspond, the last letter he mentions he has 50 people in the morning in this solidly Muslim environment in Izmir. Church planting, beginnings are difficult. And the devil confronts Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. And then he was, Jesus was near physical collapse, 40 days without food. Have you ever experienced anything like that? The most I've ever gone without food was four days. It was because of a surgical procedure that wouldn't allow me. I was famished. At the point of this weakness, the devil comes to him. And he continued to pester him the whole 40 days. doesn't come out so clearly in the NIV translation here. But the participle used there suggests continuing action. And some of the modern translations say, for where for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. And so in this weakened condition, the devil comes with these temptations. So much for the difficult circumstances in which Jesus met the devil head on. Secondly, we'll notice from this passage a threefold accomplishment. I just said that there, this suggests, the original suggests, a continuing action. So either the devil tempted Jesus in a much greater variety of ways during those 40 days, or he kept pestering him in these three specific areas. In either case, it's legitimate for us to ask, why does the Holy Spirit want us to know about these three? Well, I think the Bible, I'm sure the Bible has the answer. These three temptations represent the three vulnerable areas of human weakness in the face of temptation. And how do we know that? Well, the Gospel of John, or rather the Epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, gives us the key. Listen, do not love the world. I just in my New Living Bible this morning, this passage says, do not love this evil world because... The Bible uses the term world as God's marvelous creation. It's not that we're rejecting, but it also uses the term world as that which dishonors and insults the Lord himself. And that's the way John uses it here. Do not love this evil world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, 
the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Maybe you remember the King James version of this a little more easily. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust, soul-destroying desire, cravings that if if we get them, they turn on us and destroy us spiritually. That's what lust is. And there are three types of lust identified here. Fleshly lust, visual lust, prideful lust. You see, the devil is a master psychologist. He knows human personality. He knows our vulnerable areas. And here they are, clearly defined for us. Fleshly lust, the lust of appetite and addictions, the lust of sexual pursuits that destroy us. You know, those who stand behind the pulpit are not immune to those lustful attractions. And visual lust, what R.B. Kuyper in class always spoke of the eye gate and how the eye gate can be an entrance into the soul both for evil and for good, and the devil wants it only for evil. Ask any pastor, and he'll tell you how many marriages have been destroyed because a spouse saw someone else who looked so good. The lust of the flesh And that's why pornography is so common, part of this evil, evil world. And, of course, it isn't only in in the area of uh, fleshly lust and visual lust, but even the pride which destroys us, to which we are also so easily subjected. Pride cometh before the fall says the Bible, and the Bible is always right. Pride sends nations to war and sends people into the business world to exploit others for their own advantage. The devil knows how vulnerable, how weak we are in these three areas. And now turn with me to this passage once again and notice the devil's strategy before our Lord. Remember, fleshly lust. Verse 3. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Use your miracle power for your own advantage once. You know, Jesus never used his miracle power for his own advantage. It was always a demonstration that the kingdom of God has been realized. The rule of God has come to be. And the powers of darkness are in retreat. And that's why almost every, after every miracle we read, and many came to believe on him there. That was his purpose, not for his own advantage. So Jesus says, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. Even though it must have been attractive, the, the fleshly desire to, to satisfy a hungry body 
But Jesus said no. So the devil has to retreat to his second, his plan B, his second strategy, which you will remember is visual lust. For we read read in verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He showed him, look, Jesus, all those power centers, all those decision-making councils in the world. You can influence them. You can be in charge of them. Just bow down to me. Must have been attractive. To be such an influence in the decision-making circles of the world without having to go to the cross. But Jesus saw through that one too, even though the devil said he had this authority. It was given to him, and he can give it to anyone he pleases, which is a half-truth. He was given authority for a season. And Revelation chapter 12 says that he knows it's going to be terminated someday, but he doesn't mention that. So he's willing to give Jesus all of this authority if only Christ will accept the devil as supreme. And Jesus' response is, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil has to retreat to strategy number three. He has to appeal to prideful lust. And we read of that in verses 9 to 11. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And then quotes the Bible in a wicked effort to trick Jesus into testing the heavenly father. Would the Heavenly Father really send those angels if Jesus recklessly leapt, leaped off the, te- off the high point of the temple, the corner of the temple square? What an opportunity, though. There are always people milling around the temple square, aren't they? And if Jesus leaps and angels appear and swoop him up, he'll be a celebrity in his pride will be enhanced. But Jesus responds with these words. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil met his match, and more than that. And the devil must have been discouraged because, you see, he always had been accustomed to having his own way. From the very beginning, his strategy always worked. It worked in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, mmm, good. Why not disobey God and experience this, this fleshly satisfaction? And then we go on and read, She saw that it was desirable for, excuse me, for it was pleasing to the eye. It looked good. Why not disobey God this one time? 
because it's so visually attractive. And then the devil approaches the third area of human vulnerability when he says, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, prideful lust. And then we read this sad response. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of both of them were open. Yes, the eye gate for evil entrance into their souls and all the corruption that has followed. The devil seemed to always have his own way. Even among the leaders, among the stalwart believers in the Old Testament, think of Noah. Noah preserved, he and his family alone, from the whole human family, preserved in this God-rescued manner. And about the first grape crop he, he harvests, he ferments wine and gets drunk. And the devil succeeded in the fleshly lust attack of Noah. And think of David, who cast adulterous eyes on Bathsheba down the street from the palace while Bathsheba's husband Uriah was off fighting David's war. And he committed adultery. And David, who counted the people to see how powerful he was and how big an army he could raise, prideful lust destroyed them all. The devil always seemed to have his own way. And he still does, except for those who live in the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus prevailed. And that's why you can too. You do not have to give in to temptation. If you live by the grace and power and mercy of Jesus. So, love not the world or the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, for everything in the world will pass away. But they who do the will of the Heavenly Father will live, not just exist, but really live forever. Forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us victory in temptation. May we not submit to lust. Whatever eye-dazzling glitter we may see and bodily desires we are tempted to appease or prideful ambition we want fulfilled, forgive us, Lord, so that Jesus Christ And him alone is our defense in every hour of temptation. In his power and grace and name we bring our prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. Copyright 2009 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. 
You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.